Well, good morning. Apparently, the microphones are working now. I was preaching one time at a church. I think it was in Smith County, maybe. can't remember exactly where it was. And uh, so I was, I was preaching. I was going. And uh, got to the end, and uh, I didn't really notice anything different. And after the service was over with, a sound tech came to me and said, Hey, I just want to let you know about halfway through, I just turned you off. And uh, I said, well, why would you do that? He said, oh, it was plenty loud enough. You didn't need the microphone. And so I thought that that would be the same thing for this morning. Just uh, We just wouldn't need the mic. We'd just go uh, right on ahead with it. So I'm a country boy, South Mississippi Baptist preacher. So, you know, they tend to be loud sometimes, right? Well, uh, looking forward to being back here in the saddle with you guys as we continue through Ephesians. Uh, lots of really, really good things coming up. Uh, in Ephesians, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. If you have a copy of God's Word, if you will, please turn to Ephesians chapter 7. We've been talking, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4. There is no Ephesians chapter 7. Ephesians 4, verse 7. And uh, we've been uh, going through Ephesians. And uh, the last couple of weeks that we've been together, we have talked about unity. Uh, so we've talked about the cohesion of believers. Now, I always want to continue to remind us of what we are doing in Ephesians. And that is that we are, uh, we are discovering, or we are rediscovering maybe, the fact that we are the created masterpiece of God the Father. Now, we've, we've spent a lot of time on talking about that and the foundational issues, uh, the theological implications of what that means in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And now, as I mentioned the last time I was with you, we are getting into the practical application. Now, I, I wish time would have been a little bit different and we would be to the wives part for Mother's Day, but that's not going to be the case. Uh, so we're not going to quite be to that point. But as we progress through uh, Ephesians chapter 4 into chapter 5 and even the beginning of chapter 6, we're going to see some practical things for families. And uh, so there's going to be some instruction for us as families as to how we should, uh, should be as fathers, how you should be as a wife um, and a mother, and then also uh, children. And so we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about uh, spiritual battle. We'll talk about the, uh, the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, and so that's always an exciting time. So lots of good things are coming up, but today we find ourselves in unity. As you see uh, up top, uh, the principles of church unity, I've titled the message today, Gospel Unity. Gospel Unity. So if you like to label stuff on the top, that's where we're going to be today with Gospel Unity. And as I began to think about unity and pray through Ephesians chapter 4, I thought about uh, how all of that works together. You see, as we talk about a created masterpiece... It consists of many different parts that come together to make something amazing. I mean, think about how uh, you know many different things come together. I can remember uh, growing up as a little boy, uh, running to first base, and uh, my dad would always say, so many things have to go right for them to throw you out. You know, you hit the ball on the ground, the fielder has to catch it, he has to throw it, the first baseman has to catch it, his foot has to be on the bag. Lots of things have to go right. And so you see the harmony of those things as well. But that harmony exists in many other areas of our life. A couple of years ago, we had the, uh, 
uh, amazing opportunity to go to uh, Rome. And we spent a week in Rome and visited many of the different uh, archaeological sites there. Uh, but one of the things that we saw that was mind-blowing was the Sistine Chapel. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to, to go there. I know you've probably seen it, uh, where Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel. And uh, many, many different paintings are fused together there to make an amazing, an amazing collaboration of art. And uh, as I mentioned, Michelangelo, of course, was the one who painted it, and he built scaffolds up uh, to the top to, to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And, and they've done some renovation to it, uh, but it's withstood the test of time. Now, if you study some, and I'm not an expert on this, but if you study some about the Sistine Chapel, you'll discover that Michelangelo uh, was commissioned, if you will, to paint the Sistine Chapel uh, for one of the popes at the time. And uh, when the Pope came to him and asked him to do it, he was actually, Michelangelo was working on another project, and uh, he was very reluctant to take that job. Because Michelangelo considered himself to be a sculptor. He was not a painter. So if you're ever on Jeopardy, that may come in handy. And uh, so he considered himself to be a sculptor. And so when the Pope came and said, hey, I want you to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, he was very reluctant to do that. However, he did decide obviously that he would accept the challenge and he decided to do that because he wanted to please the pope and so when you think of this uh, cohesion of different paintings when you think about unity in general here's a part of audience participation what do you think of when you think of unity what, what are some things team there's no wrong answer and i'm not going to call you out so uh, any anything that you can think of that that comes to mind when you think of unity. Togetherness, family, congregation. Unity could also be, I'm not a mechanic, but it could also be uh, mechanical, right? Unity could be, uh, you know, all the things working together. I don't understand really how you can push a little uh, rectangular uh, piece with your foot and it makes all these other things do what they're supposed to do. That's pretty amazing, right? Uh, I mean, that's, there's unity in many areas of our life. Think about your body. Think about how everything has to work together. Nobody thinks when they walk, right? Maybe some of you do, but I don't think when I walk. You know, I'm not right, left. You know, I'm, I'm not thinking that. Heel, toe. You don't think those things. So unity in, is involved in every area of your life. And, and, and normally, unity consists of togetherness and family and team, many of those different things. All of those are true. But when we think about the picture of true unity, what is that picture? What is unity? Where, where did unity come from? Why does that matter? And so hopefully we'll answer some of those questions this morning as we jump into Ephesians chapter 4. So let's ask God to bless the reading of his word in our time together today. God, we come before you this morning, and, and God, many, many things uh, are happening uh, in our lives. God, people are sick, people are changing jobs, weather is causing floods, uh, Lord, the list goes on and on and on and on. But God, you are the one constant. Despite how high the floodwaters may come, you have always been the same according to your word. And God, you've called us to be just like Jesus. Your word says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And God, as we think of that image, God, we think of unity. We think of how Jesus 
And God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, all three work in perfect harmony. And God, as a body of believers, you have called us to be unified. God, we are to be the example to the lost world of what unity means, true unity. And so, Lord, as we look at, at this letter that Paul wrote many, many years ago to the church at Ephesus, God, we pray that you will use these words to instruct our hearts individually. God, that you will challenge us corporately and remind us of who we are and what you want to do in our lives. God, I pray this morning that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 7, Paul states here, but, so he's changing gears, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So in verses 1 through 6, uh, Paul is writing here, and he gives us all the commonalities that exist, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And now he breaks stride here in verse 7 with the word, but. And he refocuses the conversation back to its core. Now, verses, or rather chapters 1 through 3, have all uh, really pointed towards one thing, and that one thing is the grace of God, the gospel, which is the grace of God. So in verse 4, Paul states, but this grace was given to each one of us. And so Paul is refocusing the conversation here back to what really matters the most, which is grace. You see, grace is the core of the gospel. Our pastor said one time that grace is the explosion of the gospel. And so uh, as we see this grace that Paul talks about, you see Paul was the forefront runner of grace for uh, the Gentiles, for people like you and me. As we know, as we read scripture, the Jews were the chosen ones, and uh, Paul was called by Jesus. Uh, Jesus appeared to him and, and called him out to be the representatives, if you will, uh, to the Gentiles. And so as he was called into this grace, he was showing grace that you didn't have to abide by all of these different rules and regulations. You didn't have to be born in a certain family. You didn't have to have a certain heritage to receive the gospel. That's what grace is. But culture does not understand that today. It was mentioned, I think James mentioned the word culture earlier. 
and we're going to talk about culture a little bit today, but culture does not understand grace. And it was the same exact thing in Paul's day. I, the scriptures will come up on the board, but in Galatians chapter 2, a few weeks ago I actually mentioned this, where Paul went back to Jerusalem to meet with Peter, James, and John. And when he went back to meet with Peter, James, and John, uh, he had a conversation with them. In Galatians chapter 2, the Bible says after 14 years, Paul's talking here, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. So he said, he set the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And you'll, you'll read the rest of that, that Paul talks about how he brought grace into the conversation. And as he met with the, the uh, leaders, if you will, of Peter, James, and John, uh, the, the super apostles, if you will, they talked about what it meant for him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And there was someone in that meeting who insisted that Titus be circumcised, that he follow or abide by the, the restrictive laws that they had set forth for the Jewish community. That was their identification. But yet you'll read at the latter part of Galatians chapter 2 that Titus, in fact, was not circumcised, and he was not circumcised because of grace. You see, if Titus had ended up having to abide by those rules, guess what would have happened? then the, the law would have superseded grace. And it would not have been grace or the revelation of Jesus inviting those who have no ability to save themselves, you and I, into the gospel. We don't have the ability to do that. And so by abiding by the law, what we're doing is we're superseding grace. And so Paul is writing here in Galatians 2. He says, Titus shows up to the meeting with me. And it was probably intentional that Titus went. He was a convert of Paul's ministry. And so he shows up. And, and through grace, the Bible says here in the latter part, it says, when James and Peter or Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they... Uh, to, uh, and they to the circumcised. So you see what Paul is talking about here is the case of unity. Listen to me this morning. Unity versus uniformity. Unity versus uniformity. Now there is a tremendous difference between the two. And I hope to dissect a little bit of that for you this morning. You see the Pharisees insisted on uniformity. There was over 600 laws that they uh, insisted that people follow. And it, it became all about uh, following the law. If you study uh, the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, and we're not going to get into that today, you see where the Maccabean revolt took place, and, and they had decided, you know what, it's because we're not good enough. We're not following the laws, so they thought. And so they created all of these laws. There were 613 laws that they must abide by in order to achieve righteousness or right standing before God. You see, they thought that uniformity would achieve the desired results of a relationship with God. Culture today encourages uniformity. Think about, think about this. This was over 2,000 years ago, and the Jews, or the, the Pharisees were saying, you must be circumcised in order to be a child of God. Well, what does culture say today? You must think exactly like we think. Oh, you're going to change laws in the state that abide by the Scripture? Well, then we're not coming to your state. We're going to ban travel to your state. 
or, or think about the identification of gender today. Uniformity. Oh, we must be inclusive and, and everyone. There's no definition of male and female according to Scripture anymore. It's uniformity. I could talk about this a long time, but, but this is what culture is doing. And, and it happens all the time. We have to be so careful not to allow culture to define our theology. Culture doesn't define theology. The Bible defines theology. And when we talk about uniformity, what we're talking about is allowing the culture to define who we are. But that's not unity. That is not unity. You see, unity finds its beginnings in grace. Unity celebrates individualism. None of us are the same. None of us were raised the same. None of us look the same. I know some of you are saying, thank God I don't look like you, Pastor. But none of us are the same. But that's what the beauty of grace is. That is what the gospel is. You see, unity finds its beginnings in grace. It, its currency is love. And the power of unity is the spirit of Jesus Christ. But what uniformity does is it finds its beginnings in the flesh. That we've all got to be the same. That we've all got to herd into one little cattle line. And we've, got, uh, cattle line, we've all got to be exactly the same. And there can be no individuality. There can be no differences uh, amongst us. The currency of uniformity is the law. That's how it's paid. That's how it's abided by. Is that here are strict regulations of exactly how it has to be. And if you fall outside of those lines, then you're not one of us. You know, the Baptist church, unfortunately, is like that sometimes. If you don't act the way we think you should act or do the things we think you should do or say the things that we think you should say, then you can't be a part of us. In this very congregation, I've had people come to me and say, well, I've got family members who uh, won't come to church because they're afraid of what people may say. That's not the gospel. Make no mistake about that. That's called uniformity. And what that is is saying that if you're not like me, you can't be a part of this body. That's not the gospel. That's uniformity. You see, uniformity finds its power in coercion. And that is leveraged every single time by fear. We're afraid of what other people may say if we're different than them. We're afraid of what other people may say if we reveal who we really are. You see, if every one of us in the room were honest about the sin in which we participate in day in and day out, hardly any of us would show up. Because we're afraid of what someone else may say about us. That is uniformity. That is not the gospel. And what we've done is we've built churches and we've built groups and we've built religious organizations around uniformity and saying that you must be like us. You must uh, abide by the doctrines in which we set forth. I mean, think about it today. Not that it's a bad thing, but think about the constitution and bylaws of a lot of churches. They, they line their constitution and bylaws up by the desires of those who which lead the church. And a lot of times those are built on traditions instead of biblical principles. It happens all the time. I've never read your Constitution and bylaws, so I have no idea what you're saying. But my point is that that is uniformity. My job, my objective as a believer in Jesus Christ is not to get you to be just like me. If you become like me, you have failed. We want to be like Jesus. That's the gospel. And so Paul was talking here about this, this, the difference between the gospel and uniformity. And him and, and Titus could not have been more different, but the gospel made them exactly the same. 
which is saved by grace. Paul's writing here in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, he mentions the grace that had been given. You see, the commonality was grace. The commonality was grace. So why is it that it is grace? Why, why does this commonality lead us together because of grace? Why does it have to be unity through grace, not uniformity through grace? Well, the reason for that is that uniformity, or if we could call it the law, it will never bring unity. Think about it. The law will never bring unity. You and I will never always act the same way. If we, let's say that today we all got together and we said, okay, we're, gonna, we're going to come up with a standard and we're all going to agree to abide by it. Let, let's say this, this would be easy for everyone. Nobody's going to look at Facebook today. I know we've already failed. Somebody's on Facebook right now, right? So what if we said that? I mean, that's a silly example. What if we said nobody is to look at Facebook the rest of the day? Guess what? One of you would do that. Somebody would fail. It would happen because the law never leads to unity. Because why? Because the law always leads to the revelation that we cannot do it. That's what the law was for. It's just to reveal the fact that you and I were incapable of saving ourselves. This is amazing. I mean, if, I hope you're getting this this morning. And so the law will never bring unity. Guess what the law brings? It only brings temporary uniformity. Oh, for three hours, none of us looked at Facebook. I mean, we could do that for three hours, right? Temporarily, we can have uniformity, but that's not what the gospel's looking for. Th think about it this way. How many people have you known, maybe even you have done this, probably not because you're here, uh, but, but you see people walk the aisle. James, you've seen this. People walk the aisle. They receive Christ, and then they don't come back on Sunday night. You don't see them for two or three months. Maybe they, they come for a while, two or three weeks or a month, and they fizzle out. You've seen that before? Temporary uniformity. That's what that is. What people are doing is they are abiding. It's called behavioral modification. They're modifying their behavior to fit a mold that was created that was not biblical. Because if you, if you follow a mold other than the gospel, you will fail. So the law will never bring about unity. Most churches are riddled with the bylaws, as I mentioned, programs that drive people away and subvert the gospel for a code of uniformity. But you see, that's how our flesh relates to religion. It's through following rules. The flesh says that we must abide by these rules. We think that, when, that the better that we get at following the rules, you're the same way, don't, don't deny it, the better we get at following rules, the happier that God will be with us. That's how our flesh says. If I can just be good enough, then God will like me more. I was preaching at a church one time. They sang a song, The More I Do, The More God Loves Me. And so I got up. I may have shared this before. I got up. Melanie was there with me, and I looked over at her as they sang the song, and I said, I have to say something. And so I got up, and I walked up to the pulpit, and I said, I don't know who picks out the music, but that is theologically incorrect. That the more you do is not the more that God loves you. God loves you as much today as he's ever loved you and as he ever will love you. Your standing before God is not based upon your actions. And so everybody looked at me like a deer in headlights, and so I said, okay, everybody, take a deep breath with me. Don't you feel better? And I was the only one in the room that felt better. <laughs> But that's what our flesh says, is, 
You have to do things in order to make God happy. Culture tells us the same thing. Think about what's happening today in our society. Individualism is labeled as intolerant. The unity of, un, of individuals is discouraged. And uniformity is demanded. It's demanded in our culture today. So what culture is attempting to do is to redefine truth. And in doing so, what the culture is doing is creating new rules to force you and I to adapt to the culture. But the gospel doesn't do that. The gospel does not do that. The gospel says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through Jesus. But culture or the flesh says, well, that's narrow-minded. The law or the flesh says that we must work harder in order to please God. But the gospel says that Jesus has already completed the work. That's why he said it is finished. The law or the flesh says that you and I are failures. But the gospel says that in spite of our failures, that we are a masterpiece in the eyes of God through the lens of Jesus Christ. Our pastor at Michael Memorial, uh, Tony, he often refers to uh, works-based actions or legalism as glory pirates. Glory pirates. I I think that's really good. Glory pirates. Somebody who tries to steal glory from God. And that's what we do in the flesh when we say that we are going to to abide by uniformity, by uh, abiding by laws or rules or, or standards that we've set ourselves What we're doing is we're robbing God of his glory. John Calvin was correct when he said that creation is the theater of God's glory. Is that true in your life? Is the majesty of the glory of Jesus Christ on display through your life? Does the outside unbelieving world see the glory and the majesty of Jesus in what you do? Because, see, if they see your uniformity you are going to fail them. But if they see your unity in spite of your failures, the gospel will be magnified. You see, when we get tied up with rules instead of a relationship with Jesus, we rob God of his glory and we attempt to get it ourselves. Churches today focus on many things, such as budget, attendance, programs, But what if churches focused on souls? What if we depended upon God to provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory? That sounds like a scripture. Maybe that comes from Philippians 4, 19. You see, when we talk about the gospel, what we're talking about is that God supplies all of our needs. You see... What people do, churches focus on budget, attendance, and programs. What people, you and I do, is we focus on checklist Christianity, what I like to call it. Have you ever done this? You you feel good if you, I made it to both services on Sunday. I read my Bible every day this week. Maybe you accomplished a service project during the week for someone. We, We have this checklist, and we feel good about ourselves if we accomplish these things, and then we feel bad about ourselves if we don't accomplish these things. You see, our identity is in uniformity, if that's the case, is that we identify our successes or failures in the gospel by our actions or our attitudes. Now, a a law-free gospel or a gospel 
uh, that is void of the law doesn't mean that good works are not done. Don't misunderstand me this morning. A gospel without works is like a turtle without a shell. It doesn't exist. I mean, James talks about this, and in James he says that faith without works is dead, and so your faith is lived out by your actions. What it, it just means that the focus or the motivation will always be Jesus. We talked about that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, where it's by grace uh, through faith that you and I are saved. And so this is why, however, unity does not exist in a lot of churches, because everyone fails. Think about it. The failure that all of us exhibit in our lives creates division inside of the church because we don't feel that we're as good as this person or we don't we didn't do what we were supposed to do we didn't act the right way and so the failure is what comes to define us however your identity my identity is shaped or should be shaped by the gospel and through the gospel, that means that every one of us are on level ground. That I'm not better than you and you're not better than me. That we're all the same. We're all sinners in the eyes of God. And through the gospel being the focus, understanding that while we were sinners, Jesus Christ died for us and that we all need a Savior, then it makes us all on level playing ground. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I had been damaged by people in the church several years ago and what this led to in my life is a hesitancy to trust people maybe maybe you've been there when you don't trust somebody you don't share your struggles with those people you don't open up you don't let them see the real you you build walls of emotional defenses and so what God did in my life is he put people around me who were solely focused upon the gospel they weren't focused on my successes or failures they were focused on the gospel and what God did is he used their gifts to repair me. He strategically placed members within the body of Christ to build me up. And where the enemy had torn me down, God rebuilt me. So that's what we see here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul states that grace was given to each one of us. You see, the realization that God has given equally to each of us should encourage us. God is using people around you, or he's trying to use people around you, to build you up into the kingdom. Sometimes we don't think that our gifts can be used, or we, don't, we may think that uh, others are more gifted than we are in a certain area. Maybe we want to be gifted. Maybe you want to sing, but you can't. Maybe you want to, 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 do, uh, to teach, and, and maybe, maybe that's not your gift. However, unity in the gospel is simply brought about by responding in obedience. Remember Michelangelo? He was reluctant to do it, but he decided to do it because he wanted to please the Pope. So when we talk about unity, we talk about coming together, using the gift that God gave us to please God the Father. So, so real quickly here, what gift has God given us? Well, Paul mentions a few in uh, verse 11. A spiritual gift, you've heard that before, a spiritual gift, definition will come up on the screen, is a God-given ability used to serve God and other Christians in such a way that Christ is glorified and believers are edified. And so as we talk about these gifts, when we're unified by the gospel, we realize that each one of us has been given a gift and then it is therefore our mission to use this gift for the kingdom of God. Several years ago, I, Melanie bought me a birthday cake, and so we went out for my birthday, and we left the birthday cake at uh, uh, her dad's house. And so when we came back, 
Guess where the birthday cake was? In her father's stomach. He ate every bite of my cookie cake. Every single bite. Even though on the top of it, it said, Happy birthday, Matt. Not Tommy. Matt. It said Matt. It was my cake. It was for all of us to share. But yet when we showed back up at the house that night, the cake was gone. You see, just like that cake, that, that cookie cake. I like cookie cake, by the way. Just like that cookie cake, what we've done oftentimes with the gospel, God's given us a gift. We've taken that gift of the gospel, and we've kept it all to ourselves. In Matthew chapter 25, and for the sake of time, we won't read it, but there's a, a parable about a man uh, who was going on a journey, and he has servants. And there was ten of them, and he gave some of them talents. And to one he gave five, to one he gave two, and to one he gave one. And when he showed back up, the five had gained five. You know the story. The two had gained two, and the one was afraid, and so he kept the one, and then he gave the one back. You see, he hoarded that talent that the, the, uh, sir, the master had given him in the story. As we talk about the gospel and being entrusted with that talent, the spiritual gift that God has given us, the, the, uh, the gospel then has two purposes in our lives. It is for you and I to treasure and to be transformed by it. That, that's what causes other people in your life to know Jesus. When we, when we served in Virginia, there was a lady, a grandmother, who came and got saved. And the next week she brought her daughter and she got saved. And the next week uh, the daughter brought her son and he got saved. And the next week they brought their kids and they got saved. It was just this domino effect of the gospel transforming lives because it was treasured in their lives. So being entrusted with the gospel uh, causes us to treasure it, but it also causes us to pass it on. To multiply the gospel. So when we use our gifts for unity, that takes place in your life and in my life. So I just want to show you a couple of things. I know we're out of time. But what, what unity does then, when it takes place in the church, the Bible says that uh, in verse 12 that it is for the equipping of saints for the work of the ministry. You know what that means? That means in the church that needs are met. Are there needs in this church? Are there needs in this community? Sure there are. And you exist, FBC Bay St. Louis exists, to be a cohesive body of believers to meet those needs. Acts 2.45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Rescue 100 is the adoption, uh, the foster program that Michael Memorial is involved in. And the objective is to get 100 families to help with the over 700 foster kids in Harrison County. And this, these, these two weeks that we're in the middle of right now, uh, we're one of them. There's 30 of us, 30 families that are becoming officially licensed foster parents. That's meeting a need. And when unity takes place, needs are met inside the church. Not only that, people are reached. Look what happens in verse 12. For building up the body of Christ. Well, how do you build up the body of Christ? You add pieces to it. And so people are reached when unity of the gospel is proclaimed. We served in Virginia. There was a, a town that we were in. There was, uh, was 2,000 people that lived in the city. 1,000 showed up for the crusade that we had over three days. And 300 people came to know Jesus. When unity is uh, brought forth by the gospel, people are reached. So, so how does that affect you and I? Well, individually... 
the Bible says in verse 14 that we're no longer to be children tossed to and fro. So you and I become consistent in our walk with Jesus. So many people in this world are wishy-washy. They're this way today and then this way tomorrow. You see them today and they're smiling. You see them tomorrow, they're growling. There's so much inconsistency in their walk. One day they love Jesus. Next day their world's falling apart. That's inconsistency. That is not unity of the gospel. Your identity is in something besides Jesus if that is your life. But Paul says here that we become consistent in our walk. You see, when we focus on rules instead of the rule maker, we are very inconsistent in our walk. One week we're doing good, one week we're not. One week you feel saved, one week you do not feel saved. In verse 16 he says it makes the body grow up, so it builds itself up. So when you're consistent in your walk, the Spirit begins to nurture you individually. You don't depend on other people, but you depend on the Spirit. Lastly, we not only become consistent in our walk, we also become compassionate in our talk. We're going to talk about this tonight. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Speaking the truth in love. We're going to talk about engaging the culture tonight. So, so let me ask you in closing, what, what, do, what if you had no need whatsoever? What if you had no need whatsoever? How would you live your life differently? How, how would your life be different if you grasped the identity of who you are in Christ Jesus. That you are a part of an amazing body and Jesus is the head. Would it, would it cause you to see people differently? Maybe to serve them differently? We, we didn't have time today to go through it, but the word, the work of the ministry in, in our scripture here, ministry is the word diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon, which means servant. That's what the work of the ministry is, is serving. How did Jesus serve? You, you say, well, pastor, you just don't know what people have done to me. Who was at the Last Supper? Was Judas there? Did Jesus skip washing his feet? Or did he, in humility, bow down and, and wash his feet? He served Judas. Because the gospel was his focus. The gospel was was his focus. So for you and I, we do two things. We focus on what we do have in common. That's Jesus. And we seek out ways to live your faith by serving. The work of the ministry. That's what unity is. Unity based on the gospel. Or gospel unity. Not uniformity. I'm not encouraging you to be like me or anybody else in this room. I'm encouraging you to be like Jesus. And then all of our differences become similarities. Because that's what the gospel is.